Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Normally, I'm the guy, if you're here, I'm normally the guy who gets to do the worship leading, which is something I love doing. Not so high on my list is preaching, but we're going to try and do that today and talk about something. We're actually in the middle of a series of lessons that we call Acts Men. And the idea is we're talking about some of the stories and things that we can learn and apply to our lives from the book of Acts. Now, Tim said a couple of weeks ago in one of his lessons, the book of Acts was originally known as Acts of the Apostles. I don't know who shortened it down to Acts or when or why, but it does seem appropriate because all throughout the book, it's not just Acts that the Apostles did in faith. It's a whole bunch of people, men and women, who were called to act on their faith, to put their faith into action. Now, whenever I talk about being called by God, what do you think? Have you heard that language before? Has anybody ever asked you if you had a calling from God or told you that you had a calling from God? Did it confuse you? It confused me a few times. And so this lesson is going to take an aim at trying to see what maybe the Bible's got to say about that a little bit. First of all, I mean, if we're going to talk about answering a call, I think we've got to figure out what does it mean to be called? How does God call us? And how do we answer? The first point I'd give you is that if you are in God's church, if you're in God's church, you have already been called and answered that call. How do I have the guts to say that? Well, it comes from the, the root word. The word we get for church in Greek is ecclesia, or some people call it ecclesia. Ecclesia. It's a Greek word, and originally that word had nothing to do with religion. It was a word that they would use in a Greek town or a Greek community whenever they would call out citizens out of the community to serve. Maybe it was to put out a fire. Maybe it was to defend the town against invaders or marauders of some sort. But the idea was that the ecclesia were the called out. That's what ecclesia means, the called out. But it came to be synonymous with the church or the local congregation of the church. And for the same reason. See, God called his church. He called his ecclesia. They're the called out ones, the one who's been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And for the same reason. It's for the reason to serve. See, we've been called into God's kingdom to serve. As Christians, we're supposed to be called to do acts of faith. Check out this verse I found in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. Paul said there, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling. And that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours. And every act prompted by your faith. Now, what does he mean by every good purpose of yours? You see, he's connecting, isn't he? He's talking about the calling and he's connecting, living a life worthy of that calling to having his power able to make you live out every purpose of yours and every act prompted by faith. I don't think maybe what he's talking about there is any purpose that you come up with that God's going to give you the power to do it. In other words, if I decide to go play for the Cubs, I don't know hardly how I can make the team worse at this point. But I don't think, let's face it, it's just not a good year. For Well, we haven't had a good hundred years, but that's beyond the point. It's not every good purpose that we can dream up with. See, God had purposes for us when he saved us. 
He created us to do good works. Living according to his calling is about fulfilling the purpose that he has for us, which tells me that if God called us to come into his kingdom to serve him, we're going to have more calls from God. God's going to call us again and again and again. Have you thought of it that way? Have you thought about that? There's a story in Acts that I think demonstrates a Christian who was called into the kingdom and then got another call. And maybe we'll we'll pull that apart and see what we can apply to ourselves. We'll find it in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 22. Pretty familiar story. It's about Saul. We're actually picking up in the middle of the story. What's happened up to this point is Saul was headed to Damascus with letters and authority to find Christians in Damascus to put them under arrest, put them in chains, drag them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial for their faith in Christ. He meets Jesus on the road and he loses his sight. He gets knocked down, humbled and sent into Damascus to await a guy named Ananias who's going to tell him what to do. So we'll pick up the story here in verse 10. It says in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as we were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So here we have a story of a man who was called into the kingdom of God, and he gets another call. What can we learn from this guy? How can we learn to answer the call that God may send to us? Well, from this story, the first thing I saw was we have to accept that the Lord is calling you. Have to be willing to accept that the Lord is calling you. See, in verse 10 there, as we started the story, it says, In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Anything special about Ananias? Does it say he was a master of the word of God? Does it say he was an eloquent preacher? Does it say he was super faithful and any special qualification? Just a disciple. See, all we know from Scripture, and we find more out about an Ananias in chapter 22 of Acts, but we don't have a lot of information about him. About all that we know about him that I'm aware of is that he had a good reputation. He had a good reputation with the Jews as well as with the Christians. Beyond that, he's just a disciple. How is that different than you? Did he have any more qualification than you do 
to receive a call from God. It doesn't look like it. And yet, if I talk to you about a calling, about God calling you to use you to serve him in some great way, are you thinking, oh, that's probably for somebody else? He wouldn't call me. He'd call Tim. He'd call Bob. He'd call somebody, but not me. If we're going to answer the call, see, I believe God wants to call us. I think he called us to serve him. See, we're not the center of the universe. Christ is. We don't come to Christ and become Christians for what Jesus can do for us. We come to him because he is the authority. He's the owner. He's the power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So our reason for obeying him is because he has that kind of authority. I used to be a cop. When I pulled my 357 Magnum and pointed it at somebody with a badge on my chest and said, stop or I'll shoot, generally speaking, they stopped. And the reason being is because they knew I had the authority in the moment to shoot them. Right? Jesus has the authority to do whatever he wants. That's why we worship him. He is the legitimate authority. The power of darkness is illegitimate authority. If we're going to respond to that authority and be truly the called out, the ones who are called to serve the Lord, well, first of all, we're going to have to accept that he's going to call you. He's going to call you at some point. The second thing I saw was, this one sort of goes without saying, is we have to answer when he calls. We have to be willing to answer when he calls. You ever, most of us in here got cell phones, right? You ever look at your cell phone to see who's calling before you answer? And then you sort of decide on the spot whether you want to take that call or not. And you go, mm, I think I'll let that one go to voicemail. And then I'll decide if I want to return the call or, you know, whatever. We've all done that, right? No? <laughs> I wonder if you'd lie about other things. <laughs> Heckle me some more. That's all I got to say. Anyway, uh, <laughs> how often do we do that with God, though? How often do we hear the call of God and we look at it and decide if we're going to let it go to voicemail? And maybe check out and say, ah, what's this going to cost me? Do I really want to get involved with this? How's it going to bless me? See, I think if we're going to actually hear God and, and answer the call and become acts men and women ourselves, where we're called to our, our faith acting in service to the Lord, we're going to have to be willing to answer the call. Look what happens here at the end of verse 10. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. I study out on a computer. I, I put lessons together in my own personal Bible study. I use the computer. And so I can compare different translations to one another fairly easily. One of my favorites at this point is the New King James Version. One of the reasons why the New King James is a, is a favorite of mine is because it's very literal and because I actually have a Greek tool that in that particular version I can scroll over a word and look at the original Greek language and get a definition. I'm just too cheap to be able to put that on other translations. But I found something interesting in, in Ananias's response where I looked at literal translations. Instead of, yes, Lord, the most literal translations record him as, as, as having said, here I am, Lord. Now, whenever I heard, here I am, Lord... A kind of a flag went off. I've heard that phrase before. Does it sound familiar to you? 
Some of the great heroes of the Bible were called by God and they answered the same way. So I thought maybe there's some significance to this. Abraham answered that way. Jacob, Moses, Samuel, all of these guys were called by God and he used them powerfully in significant ways so that in some cases, a thousand or two thousand, three thousand years later, we still are telling their stories of how they answered God's call. What do you think it means whenever you say, here I am, Lord, as opposed to, hey, how are you? Those are different flavors, aren't they? See, I think, and I can't prove it, but I think saying, here I am, Lord, is maybe like saying, front and center, I'm here, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. It's about answering the call. It's about answering, reporting for duty, maybe is the best way I can say it. See, Ananias, when God calls him, he says, here I am, Lord. And I'm ready and I'm available to do what you want me to do. One of our problems in American churches is we've reversed the order of things. We've come to church for what God will do for us. And in many cases, we've lost touch with the idea that we come to church, we come into the kingdom of God in order to serve God. That we don't direct God to tell him what to do for us. We don't call on his power to benefit us. We've been given the family business. If we're Christians, if we're disciples of Jesus, we've been given the family business. The family business is saving people. Showing that God is true. God is good. God is sovereign. And the kingdom of God is all that really matters. We've been called to do that whenever we answer and pray for God's will to be done. It's to do that, to advance the kingdom of God. And so we show up for duty when God calls us. But you know what? It does not matter if God calls us or not if we refuse to answer. If you had an employee and you were trying to call him to come in for an extra shift, and some of you have probably been in this situation, and they refuse to take your call, how do you feel about that employee? If you have a kid and you've given them a cell phone, and you're trying to get a hold of them, and they refuse to take your call. How does that make you feel? It's not good on either side, right? And yet as Christians, if we're not willing to answer the call of God, don't we run into the same problems? He bought us for a purpose. He's called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to serve him. So we need to answer that call and let him put our faith into action. So now this brings up some very practical questions. How does God call? I'm not going to say he can't use your cell phone. I'm just going to say I don't know of anybody ever having gotten a call through a cell phone. And I would love to be able to tell you, oh, here's exactly how God can call you. Here's all the different ways and the whys and the hows and so forth. I just don't have that kind of information. But I can make a few suggestions based off of things that I've seen in Scripture. One of the ways that God could be calling you is he could be calling you through dreams and visions. I'm not saying that he's going to call you through dreams and visions, but he could. How do I know that? Well, didn't he call Ananias in this verse, in this story, through a vision? He called Saul in the same story through a vision. What's a vision? I don't know that I've had a whole lot of visions. I've, I've been told it's daydreaming. It's kind of like wherever you're awake, but you're sort of dreaming, and you see the movie. You see the images flashing through your eyes. You remember Peter was on top of a roof and he had one of these visions. He saw quite vividly sheets and animals and things like that. God was calling him. 
So visions are one of the ways that God could be calling you, and dreams are another. Look at what Job 33, 14-15 says. In Job 33, 14-15, it says, For God does speak. He does. He talks to us. Now one way, now another. Lots of different ways that he can talk to us. Though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds. Job acknowledges that God's got lots of different ways to talk to people. And he suggests two of them there, visions and dreams. Now, I think most of the stories where people have had dreams, where God was communicating to them and calling them through a dream, I think most of those are recorded as being a very unpleasant experience. So, how do you determine whether or not a dream is from God or a vision is from God? We'll get into that in a minute. But on this list of ways that God could be calling you, it could be an inner voice or a nudge. You know what I'm talking about? Have you had this before? You have an inner voice. Have you ever been praying and asking God to answer a question for you? And then somehow or another, the, the answer seems to float through your head. Have you had that experience? If you haven't, it does happen. Lots of us have had that experience, right? Or maybe you're sitting in a situation and you feel this tug or this nudge to take an action. I believe that that is God calling us. At least it certainly could be God calling us. Look at what John 14:26 says. It says there, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. What's a Counselor? The Holy Spirit is a Counselor. That's one of his names or one of his definitions or job description. What does a Counselor do? They talk to you, don't they? They give you advice. He says, the, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Isn't that an inner voice? Isn't that a nudge? How many times have you been looking at a situation and a verse comes floating up that applies to that situation? It could be God. In fact, I think that it is. And if he, he's communicating with us somehow and calling us into action quite often. Another possibility would, could be just the Word of God itself. God can call you through the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, He called you to this through our gospel. The gospel is the Word of God, right? God calls us through His Word. Have you ever been sitting and reading a passage and you go, Ooh, that applies to me. I need to do that. Particularly whenever it comes to those verses on forgiveness or being reconciled with people. You ever been reading and you read that part where Jesus says, Hey, if you know someone's got a problem with you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. And you know somebody's got a problem at you, problem with you. Do you realize that God is calling you to take action, to put your faith in action? He doesn't say that the problem has to be legitimate. The only qualification is that do they have a problem with you? And it's at moments like that that you decide, will you answer the call or let it go to voicemail or ignore it? But the Word of God, God can call us through that. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I believe that one of the ways that God speaks to us and calls us into faithful action makes us ask men, ask women, is through the Word of God. 
Another possibility is it could be God putting something right in front of you. Did that to Moses, didn't he? He's out herding sheep and boom, there's a burning bush. Sticks it right in front of him. One of the things that Tim and Gary and I started talking about a couple of years ago, we've really been trying to practice it and, and we've been seeing some good fruit from this, is the idea of just faithfully responding to whatever God puts in front of us. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? And yet it can be kind of dicey. Sometimes he brings us right to a situation and boom, there it is. And there's this desire to go left and avoid it. Again, conflict is one of those things that we all like to avoid usually, right? We either like to avoid it or we like to do it our way. There's neither one of those are really answering the call of God. To handle conflict God's way is unnatural and it's risky. It's about being faithful. And I believe that God calls us into action quite often through just putting us in a situation, putting something right in front of us. And we either accept that call or we reject that call. But God bought us for a purpose and he wants to call our faith into action and have us serve him in exactly those situations. So how can I know if it's God that's calling? Paul Mariolis told me a story of his brother. He was in a different church a lot of years ago. And the preacher had his brother stand up. He was sitting over here on this side of the audience. And he said, Philip Miller Mariola, stand up. So he did. And a girl he didn't know on the other side of the church, he called her to stand up. And he said, God has called me and told me that you two are supposed to get married. Well, they did. <laughs> and they're still married. Was that really God calling? The preacher said so. Aren't we supposed to believe our preachers? How do you know if it's God that's calling? I mean, most of you are shaking your head going, that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't pass the smell test. I think you're right. <laughs> I don't think so. But how do you know if the calling or the nudge that you're feeling, that inner voice, how do you know if that's God or not? That dream, that vision. How do you know if that's God or not? Well, 1 John 4.1, I think there is an answer to that. 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. To see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're supposed to test the spirits. See, now, everybody that stands on this pulpit and talks to you about the word of God and what God wants, I believe we do a pretty good job of making sure that all of them are very sincere and they do their homework and they really try hard to tell you exactly what God would have you hear. And yet you know that we're all flawed. We're all somewhat handcuffed by the best we know. And there's not one of us that knows it all. So while I'm doing the best I can to show you what I believe is true, that does not relieve you of the responsibility of checking out what I've said. You still bear the responsibility of checking it out to see if what I'm telling you is from God or not. And so you have to test the spirit. How do you test the spirits? Well, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active. You ever heard people say, well, the Bible's outdated? It doesn't apply anymore. Well, this verse says they're wrong. I mean, I could try to make that more of an elaborate point, but I think it's sort of self-explanatory. It's alive. Now, here's a gratuitous point that it really isn't a part of my, my sermon here, but I want to make the point anyway, and I hope you'll indulge me. The Word of God is called a seed. Seeds look dead until you put them in the ground, right? And then what happens? 
they burst into life and they reproduce the life of the plant that the seed came from. So if it was a corn, you get this from this little yellow seed, you get this big green plant with lots of ears and leaves and more corn on it. The Word of God is a seed that's alive, it's living and it's active. And it reproduces the life of Christ in the believer. How do you know if this church is a healthy church? Or that church down there? Or one over this way? How do you judge if a church is healthy? If it's a good church? How would you know? Some of the popular answers are, well, do they have a large, large attendance? Do they have a lot of people? Do they have a lot of money? Do they have a lot of programs? What's, what's their kids' ministry like? Do they have a lot of uh, ministries where I can go have this need met and that need met and the other need met? Do they have a big building? I think you can find all of those things in churches that preach anything but Christianity. So I don't know that that's the true measure of whether a church is healthy or not. I think the safest way to judge the health of a church is by whether or not the life of Jesus is being reproduced in the people who worship there. Because either the Word of God is living and active in a person's life, or it's not. Either we're showing you the Word of God and teaching you how to read it for yourself and apply it for yourself so that you can be transformed and live the life of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, you should be becoming more like Jesus all the time. Because we're supposed to have His life reproduced in us. We're not supposed to be just sitting in a chair and going to regular meetings and showing up and going through the rituals. That's not New Testament Christianity. That is not the ecclesia. That's not the called out. The called out are changing and growing and answering the call. Okay, back to my sermon. Uh, for the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. You know, it can get pretty muddy with all the different voices that shout, this is, God would have you do this. God would have you do that. I think God wants you to do this. How do you tell the difference if you're being called by God or called by somebody else? The Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It can get right in there. You know, some messages have a mixture of truth and falseness in them. I think the Word of God will, will expose which is which. So what I'm telling you is, Whatever you hear, from whatever source, compare it to the Word of God. It is the revealed will of God. If it matches up, there's a very good chance that it's God calling, that it's what He wants done. If it doesn't match up, it probably is not. That's how you can tell the difference between all those voices. Psalms 119.105, a very familiar passage, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do you know what the power of Satan is? His weapon? Darkness. That's a powerful weapon. You ever been in a really dark place? I was in a cave once. Not that I'm you know, happy to go to caves all the time, but I was in a cave on a tour, and the tour guide said, okay, for just a second or so, we're going to turn out all the lights so that you can see what utter darkness is. You ever been that? Anybody else gummed in that? Isn't it impressive? They kill those lights, and I mean, you can't see this. In an environment like that, just a match makes a heck of a difference, doesn't it? And the darkness has to run away from it. The darkness falls away even with just a little bit of light. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In the kingdom of darkness, darkness gets to control 
what happens to us. It has the final say. It gets to say what happens to our kids, where our future is going. But in the kingdom of light, it's God. In fact, as disciples, we are inheritors of light. Colossians tells us our inheritance is light, not real estate, jewelry, and all those other things. It's light. And in light, we don't have to stumble around. One of the spooky things about that cave illustration is, I was told, and I believe it's true, that if you were to spend too much time in the dark, you'd go blind. The absence of light can drive a person to blindness. I think the truth is, when we spend our time in the kingdom of darkness, we can begin to not be able to see things too. The Word of God provides light to show us where we're walking and will help us figure out if the voice we're hearing is from God, Him calling us, or from another source. So always go back to the Word of God. Third point about how we can answer the call. Anticipate a change to your plans. Anticipate. I was trying to use A words. I I, I probably should have used the word expect. Expect a change to your plans. If you're going to answer God's call, he is probably going to change your plans or mess with them. In some cases, absolutely hijack them. Look what happened to Ananias, verses 13 through 15. He answers, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Paul had a reputation that had already reached Damascus. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. See, Ananias knew who Saul was, knew that he was coming to town, and Ananias had a plan. Avoid Saul. At all costs, avoid Saul. Why? Saul had a list of names, Christians, that he wanted to arrest and take back to Jerusalem. Ananias was on the list. His name, undoubtedly, was on that list. So his plan was to avoid this maniac. What does God say? I want you to go to him. Ananias had to go. See, when we answer God's call, we may end up having to go someplace we never thought we wanted to go. Never wanted to be willing to go. But it gets even richer. Because what did he have to do when he got got there? See, not only did he have to go and meet Saul, he had to touch him. Touching is risky, isn't it? We all know people that we really don't want to touch. Right? For any number of reasons. Well, here's a guy who's getting people arrested and thrown in jail and even killed for their faith. I think the last thing he wanted to do was touch this man. I don't think that he really wanted to show any approval or any connection to this guy. But if that seed of the word falls into our hearts and we start reproducing, it starts reproducing the life of Christ inside us, we're going to start looking like Jesus and behaving like Jesus. Did Jesus touch people that nobody else wanted to touch? Yes, he did. He touched lepers. What's the problem with touching a leper? It was a communicable disease. They used to make these people leave town and live on the outskirts in a leper colony. So they put all the sick ones together. And then if they did walk around outside of that community, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. So the people would know better than to get anywhere near them. And if you touched the leper, they considered you to be a leper. Because the odds were you were going to get it. Jesus touched those kinds of people. Is there somebody that you know of that you're afraid to touch because you don't want to get it on you? Whatever's on them? Is God calling you to touch them anyway? 
See, it's hard to get down in the mud to help somebody out of the mud without getting a little mud on you. Right? But let's get real. Who are we to complain about mud? Where did we come from? Are you a stranger to mud? I've had some mud on me. And God called somebody to reach out and touch me and bring me out of the kingdom of darkness. By the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus is having a conversation with Saul on the road? He's got his undivided attention and he doesn't tell him what to do. He gives that responsibility to a man that's going to be called later. You see that happening over and over in Scripture where God could tell somebody just straight up what to do. And instead of doing that, he gives it to another man to do. Why? Why would God do that? I really don't know. I don't know. I don't know the mind of God on this. I just know that he does it a lot. And it has something to do with the reason why we're called the Ecclesia, the called out. It has something to do with God wants to use us as his servants and his ambassadors to a fallen world. Jesus touched lepers. That wasn't all that he touched. You know, he touched dead guys, too. In um, Luke 7, verses 11 through 15, there's a story where Jesus is standing and a funeral comes by. And this, it's a, um, a woman who's a widow, and her only son is dead. Which in that society was really a big deal, because she had only almost no means of support. A woman without a husband or a son was really destitute and on her own. Here comes this dead body by, and Jesus walks over and touches the dead body, brings it back to life. There's always power involved in touching people in Jesus' name. But why is it such a big deal that he would touch a dead body? Well, again, they were a very religious society, and they had tons and tons of rules. And just like touching a leper would get you marked as a leper, touching a dead thing, a dead body, would get you classified as unclean. People would say terrible things about you until you'd gone through the purification process. You would not be allowed in certain circles because you were unclean. Is there somebody that God's calling you to touch, but you're afraid of what people will say about you if you do? If we're going to have the life of Jesus reproduced in us, if we're going to answer his call, we've got to accept the fact that he's going to change our plans. And he's going to call us to touch people in his name that we would under no other circumstances possibly ever touch. So how can I be sure that I don't miss the call? Remember Job? He said sometimes people don't perceive it when God's calling them. That's a legitimate possibility. How can we be sure that we don't miss the call? You ever been driving down the road and you get your radio jacked up and whenever you shut it off, you kill the engine, turn off the radio, you see that you've missed 14 calls? It happens to me a lot. What is it that causes us to miss calls? I would suggest that if we're going to listen to God's calls, hear God's calls, we're going to have to tune out the distractions and focus on God. We live in a world that has all sorts of voices shouting for our attention, don't we? All kinds of things that will steal our focus, drown out, maybe even the call of God. There's a story from the Old Testament that I think gives us some insight on this problem. 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 13 story of the prophet Elijah. God was trying to communicate to him. And here's how the story reads. It says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. 
But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So there's a sharp contrast between all the other voices that doubt and whenever it's God. God whispered and everything else. Why do you think Elijah pulled his cloak over his face? I think he's right. I think you're right. I think it was about tuning it out. I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us specifically what he was thinking and why he did that. But I think maybe what he wanted to do is he wanted to drown out the wind, the fire, and the earthquake and listen to that gentle voice. What are the distractions that you face that keep you from hearing when God's going to call? Is it a sin? Is it forgetting your identity as the called out ones? Is it thinking wrongly that Jesus is there to serve you and meet your needs rather than understanding that you've been called into his kingdom to serve him? That could certainly provide a few distractions, couldn't it? God calls us to die to ourselves. You realize that's what we're talking about here, right? Because there's things that we would naturally want to do and things that we would just naturally do, and we're called to die to all that and answer His call. The only question really is, will we answer the call? You see, the reality is, is He's calling all of us by name. The only question is, is will we turn around and answer? You know, the story doesn't just end with him accepting the call and touching Saul. The story goes on to say this Saul immediately starts teaching Jesus. Ananias answered the call and he touched this man no Christian would ever want to touch. And that man becomes a disciple who touches millions and millions. In fact, he's still touching us today. He wrote a lot of the epistles in the New Testament. We learn from this guy. What if Ananias hadn't taken the call? What about you? Who's God calling you to take and touch? Take his name to them and touch. Will you answer the call? You don't have to be a big deal or a big shot to be used by God. you just got to be willing to listen for his call and answer, here I am. And be willing to let him change your plans and for you to go to work to become a person whose faith acts. Not just a said faith, but a faith that acts. Who's God calling you to touch? I'd ask you guys, as, as we closed out this morning, to try to deal with those distractions. It's worth it to answer the call. Is it scary and risky? Yes. But it's worth it. Because through answering his call, we come to know him better, and we see his kingdom come. We see darkness fall away. We see light brought into lives. We see people change. And God is glorified. Not a church. Not a preacher. Not a system of belief. But a holy, righteous God. And His Son, who is the King of everything. If you would, bow with me and pray and we'll wind it up.